Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Wednesday, July the 19th, 2023. Earlier this week, we did a show with uh, a young historian, uh, Jacob Mikanowski. Uh, he has a new book out, Goodbye Eastern Europe. Fascinating book, really interesting conversation. Uh, the subtitle, An Intimate History of a Divided Land. Jacob seems to suggest that uh, with all the fracturing of globalization, of all the forces of the global neoliberal world, Eastern Europe is a thing of the past. It's fractured and become globalized. The concept of East Europe is not very valuable. I wonder whether my guest today might disagree. Um, Natasha Wheatley is a historian at Princeton University, and she has a new book out, The Life and Death of States, Central Europe and the Transformation of Modern Sovereignty. It's a book about what we can learn from history, about sovereignty from Central Europe. Of course, Central and Eastern Europe are different concepts. She works very much in the context of the Habsburg Empire and its legacy. And she's joining us from Brooklyn in New York. Uh, Natasha, congratulations on the new book. I'm not sure if you've had a, an opportunity to uh, have a look at Jacob Mikanowski's new book. I know he's familiar with yours. Did, did you have a chance to look at it? No, I, I did have the pleasure, though, of listening to your interview with him. But no, I don't yet have uh, his book. Oh, good. So you have had a chance to listen to the interview. What did you think of his notion of, of, of Eastern or East Central Europe of being um, uh, something that really no longer exists, a romantic figment from the past? Yeah, I thought that was a really interesting interview. Um, I mean, in some ways, he's really focused on the, the kind of Soviet period and or really the 20th century. Um, as he said, Larry Wolf, an historian at NYU, argued quite famously that the whole idea of Eastern Europe only came into existence uh, in the period of the Enlightenment. Um, in my own work, Eastern Europe isn't such a key concept. Um, the Habsburg Empire doesn't describe itself like that. Um, but I do think it's interesting um, if we think about a lot of associations we have with the idea of Eastern Europe as some sort of deviation from the modern norm, right, where there's a lot of, I guess, orientalizing cliches that think of a kind of um, deviation from a path into a progressive modernity and rather one that's stuck with a lot of historic traditions and um, perhaps authoritarian ones as well. And in some ways, my book is trying to problematize a lot of those associations that we have with this part of the world, uh, because I'm interested actually in, in the way in which we've often taken Western European sovereignty and statehood, especially models of Britain and France, as some kind of norm, right, or as some sort of universal measure against which we might judge or understand the histories and, and the political cultures um, of other states. And in some ways, I want to flip that around <laughs> and explore the way in which the much more complex and plural sovereignty that you get in a place like the Habsburg Empire might actually turn out not only to be closer to a kind of global norm, uh, but actually ever more useful as we move into the present with, um, you know, sovereignty that's breaking up and fracturing across, according to all kinds of new logics, whether that's uh, global capitalism uh, or different sorts of ethnic groupings or the like. Yeah, um, it's an interesting observation. I, I tend to think Eastern Europe 
is less a thing of the past, more of the future. It's, it's where we're all going. Um, Milan Kundera has certainly gone somewhere this week. He died, um, and he was one of the great uh, romanticizers, I guess, or polemicists of the notion of Central Europe. He stressed the fact that he, as a Czech, was from Central rather than Eastern Europe. Your book, um, as you noted, is about the Habsburg Empire and its subtitle is Central Europe and the Transformation of Modern Sovereignty. Uh, for viewers and listeners, Natasha, who aren't familiar with the Habsburg monarchy, and particularly in the 19th, 18th and 19th century, tell us a little bit about it and why it somehow captures whatever Central Europe is supposed to mean. Yeah, thank you. So the Habsburg Empire was this, you know, I don't know about your, most of your listeners, but when I think about when I first heard about the Habsburg Empire, you know, it was in some high school class on the First World War. And all you needed to kind of know about it in that context was it was the thing that disappeared <laughs> as a result of the war. It was kind of defined by its negation. It was something backward and perhaps a little bit otherworldly. Uh, and in some ways, its disappearance at the end of the war was almost fated by history. It was kind of blown away by the kind of forces of, of modernity uh, and progress. Um, you know, over the years, especially the last few decades, uh, as a lot of historians have really challenged that view of the empire uh, along a number of different axes. Um, a lot of those older views of the empire as a kind of anachronism um, in modern Europe were based on the idea that it was so explicitly a dynasty, right? So that's the first thing that everyone should understand about the Habsburg Empire. Um, it, it, was a, it was a monarchical state that, um, according to some observers, you know, all it had in common really was a shared ruler, right? A shared monarch, the Habsburg dynasty, this kind of very storied uh, a royal family. And they, they be began as um, more provincial lords in different you know, lands that are now part of Austria. Uh, but over the course of the early modern period, especially uh, uh, the 15th, 16th and 17th centuries, they gradually acquired more and more principalities uh, in Central and uh, increasingly in what we would subsequently term Eastern Europe. Uh, so in the 16th century, they acquired the crowns of the Kingdom of Bohemia, today included in, Czech, in the Czech Republic, uh, and the, 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 uh, the crown of Hungary. Um, and so they've really expanded into this, this empire, by the, which by the 19th century, you know, ran from today's Poland all the way down to Croatia. It included parts of northern Italy all the way to parts of western Ukraine, right? Lviv in Ukraine's uh, east uh, was part of the Habsburg lands. And so it really dominated the map of the continent and it really dominated great power politics in the 19th century. Yeah, it's I just came back from Vilnius. I was there a couple of weeks ago and uh, the Habsburgs come up time and time again. Of course, Vilnius is quite far east. Lithuania being yes we tend to associate it with Russia but actually in some ways they think of themselves as Central Europeans too yeah and I think there's a long tradition of people in the region wanting to establish their centrality to Europe right rather than being seen as some peripheral kind of edge of Europe uh you know the Czechs Kundur you know among them you know famously want to argue well we're literally in the geographic middle of the continent uh you know and and something that's it's very true about the Habsburg Empire it's really this this you know um, it's brokering the kind of, you know, Italian lands uh, with the Balkans, you know, with the Russian East. And it's got as well as, of course, you know, uh, the Germans. 
And it's got speakers, you know, speaking some 12 different languages, right? So it's incredibly diverse in its, its ethnic and linguistic profile as well as its religious profile. So it's this state that doesn't look like um, many Western European states. It, it's sprawling and it's not only ethnically diverse, it's, it's legally diverse. And, and by that, I mean, it's composed of all these smaller polities. So I mentioned that, you know, the acquisition of the crown of Bohemia in Hungary were crucial uh, to the, its expansion. And essentially, those historic lands all retain their legal identity in the empire, right? They're not well, dissolved. Could we call it, uh, in an odd way, um, uh, uh, Natasha, might we suggest that it, it retained a sort of a degree of feudalism within a, a kind of modern state? Or is feudalism an inappropriate word here? I think feudalism is a pretty crude word uh, for what we do have, although it does get at some sort of uh, truth, because it's true that, you know, the, the legal orders of those historic polities were profoundly aristocratic, right? So um, when we talk about the historic constitution of Hungary uh, or the, you know, historic traditions and rights of the Bohemian uh, kingdom, they were, they were rights and privileges that essentially uh, the aristocracy had against the king, right, to, to collect taxes and administer justice and uh, to, to, to exercise many of the other functions um, of governance. Now, those prerogatives were gradually acquired over the intervening centuries by a central government in Vienna, but the kind of imprint of that old legal order remained so that even into the late 19th century, all those different lands were governed in different ways. So you didn't have a uniform singular legal order, which is a key kind of component of our modern understanding of what a state is, that everyone is uniform before the law and that, you know, each each anywhere wherever you are in the state has the same legal status. And that was not true of the Habsburg Empire. And, and, to, uh, and what was the, 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 the foundation in terms of the legitimacy of, of power of the royal family? Did they, they certainly didn't define themselves in ethnic terms. If anything, they were uh, the enemies of the reinvention or the rediscovery of ethnicity in the 19th century. How did they legitimize their rule? Yeah, another great question. So classically, you know, this is that's in some ways the most the, the quintessential, uh, you know, monarchical state, and they define they. De- define their legitimacy in those very traditional terms, especially the divine right of kings, right? This was a, you know, an inherited right to rule spanning centuries into the deep past, so much further back than anyone could remember. And indeed, for a dynasty that, you know, governed for, you know, more than 500 years, that's a very, very long uh, period of time uh, where it seemed that history itself had sanctified, right, their rule. And so what's very interesting for me and what plays a big role in my book is that what happens, though, to those traditional understandings of the legitimacy of rule um, in the 19th century after as this idea of the divine right of kings is definitely vanishing and you can't just rely on that anymore in a kind of natural you know, way. Uh, and in other countries, um, you know, in, in France, you have a revolution, right, at the end of the uh, 18th century that refounds the legitimacy of the state on principles of natural law and natural right you know, uh, self-evident truths, you know, very similar uh, to America. Uh, in Germany, in, in contrast, you have a kind of refounding of the legitimacy of the state based on an ethnic group, right, on the kind of 
um, you know, on the Das Volk, you know, on the German people. And you can't do either of those things in the Habsburg lands. If we think about those as two classic strategies of modernity for kind of refounding the legitimacy of states, uh, you know, in the Habsburg lands, you've got a profound continuity of historic and traditional law. So there's nothing like a natural rights or natural law revolution like there is in France and America. But you also can't invoke the kind of natural authority of the people in an ethnic sense, because there are so many different communities who live there. So I'm interested in how they had to work very hard uh, to, to rethink what the foundations of a state were in, in this part of, of the world. And as a result, I argue, they developed an extremely dynamic and literate and sophisticated legal tradition uh, where I, I argue that it became a kind of laboratory for thinking about statehood and sovereignty precisely because you couldn't rely on any of these kind of standard It was a multi, it was an attempt to sort of modernize multi-ethnicity, multiculturalism without selling out to the nationalists as a, as a kind of alternative. But I'm curious, um, Natalie, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the work of um, another historian, Mark David Bauer. Uh, he has a new book out, or he had a new book out last year, The Ottomans, Khan, Caesars and Caliphs. Of course, mm -hmm. the Ottomans were the real sick men of Europe. The, uh, the Habsburgs were sick, but a little less sick. To what extent <laughs> were the Ottomans going through the same crisis. I assume they didn't respond as effectively to all these forces of modernity as the Habsburgs. Yeah, it's a really interesting comparison and there's so much interesting new historical work going on right now that's thinking about the Habsburg and the Ottoman and the Russian cases together, right? You've got these three sprawling continental empires uh, that look quite different to the maritime empires of the British or the French or the Dutch or the Portuguese because their territories are contiguous and they've got different traditions of rule. And, you know, all of them are going through different sorts of modernization struggles in a similar period. And, and that's especially true about parallels between um, or some parallels between the Ottoman Empire and the Habsburg Empire, who both go through really systematic constitutional restructurings in the 1860s. Uh, so in Ottoman lands, it's the Tanzimat reforms. Um, and in, in the Habsburg lands, you have a series of new constitutions that are trying to figure out how the state should be arranged. And so we can see both of those um, as symptoms of a new um, kind of pressure on empires to define themselves with ideas and with terms that are explicable between cases, right? So this is a period of great imperial expansion throughout Africa and in other parts of the world. And now ideas of sovereignty have become this kind of global lingua franca, this kind of global currency. And so everyone wants to now kind of codify themselves uh, as empires as well. And so, yes, in the Habsburg lands, those attempts at modernization, well, it's not just attempts. I mean, you know, they have um, mandatory schooling uh, before most other places. They have an extremely progressive multilingual order, as, as you kind of indicated, where you can speak to the state in any of the empire's 12 or so languages. If there are, you know, 20 school children within a certain, you know, pretty narrow uh, radius of kilometers, you have the right to public schooling in that language, right? Uh, if, if an officer in the army has to speak the languages of, of the of the men uh, under his command. So they really try and create uh, a multi-ethnic polity uh, that doesn't 
Um, I mean, it's true that German was the language of law and administration, uh, but they really try and um, uh, create a multilingual policy polity that doesn't privilege, right? That doesn't say this one group is is the the group, the Staatsvolk, as you would it say. It sounds a little bit like Brooklyn, where you live. Maybe, <laughs> maybe Queens is the better example. <laughs> my son's in Queens. Oh, yeah. uh, in all seriousness, uh, one of my great intellectual heroes is another remarkable Central European, Ernest Gellner, anthropologist, theorist of nationalism. He has a book, or he had a book, a classic, Nations yes. and Nationalism, in which he uses Central Europe, your Central Europe, as the sort of the engine room for the development of nationalism. He suggests that you have this, through modernity, this congruence of culture and the state. What do you make of Gellner's theory of nationalism? It's an old one. It's a lot of people have criticized it. Do you, do you think it still holds water? You know, Gellner is a fascinating character. Um, uh, I, I was remember being quite affected by, he's got another smaller book, maybe it was published published posthumously, called, I think, The Habsburg Dilemma or Language. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I read right. that one too. Dilemma is, 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 is the subtitle. You know, it's not an accident, Andrew, that's the kind of canonical literature on nationalism that we have from the late 19th century is, is in large part produced by thinkers from this part of the world, right? Before Gellner, you had people like Hans Kuhn, uh, K-O-H-N, right? Uh, and Gellner. Uh, and you have a whole series of others who really are the, taken as the kind of theorists, you know, of, of nationalism. So, I mean, there's new work emerging now, but still, you know, 15 years ago uh, when I started graduate school, if you were putting together a reading list on nations and nationalism, I mean, you're essentially reading the Central Europeans. And in some ways that's really continued uh, into more recent historiography where the, the Habsburg Empire has been this kind of powerhouse for kind of new approaches for historians to thinking about what nations and nationalism are. So you or some of your readers may have heard of Tara Zara, who's a, a wonderful and very famous professor at the University of Chicago, who pioneered this idea of national indifference. She wanted to stress against a kind of image of everyone in these in these parts being kind of rabid nationalists, that there were all kinds of people who not only spoke several languages, uh, but didn't actually, in some overwhelming or essential way, identify with one particular nation, right? But rather that they were kind of nationally flexible. In one context, they might think of themselves as Germans, and in another, they might think of themselves as Czechs. And that we as historians need to be able to account for those people and not just leave them out of our stories, which often happens if we tell the history of modernity in this region as one just of the awakening of nations, you know, moving inevitably or teleologically towards their own states. Natasha, you present the 19th century Habsburg model is in some ways viable and vibrant. How would you respond to the way in which it was, I wouldn't say vilified, but turned into an absurdity by so many late Habsburg writers and thinkers? One thinks of Musel, for example, the man without qualities. Why did it lose the legitimacy of its intellectual class? Yeah, another great question. Uh, you know, I, I love Musil and uh, his man without qualities is in some ways a kind of shadow presence uh, throughout the book. Yeah, I mean, it's the ultimate critique of Habsburgism, isn't it? Well, that's an interesting question. It is and it isn't. I think it's it's very affectionate as well. Uh, you know, he's got this absolutely, you know, kind of um, unforgiving irony, which he turns on absolutely everything, right? And I, I think it's a kind of, in some ways, a classic uh, Habsburg prerogative to kind of make fun of the state. Yeah, right? the nihilism, I guess, uh, Karl Kreis. I mean, there's so many figures who... Yeah. 
and, it didn't. And, it didn't. It, it didn't generate a great deal of, of loyalty, did it? I mean, who believed in in Habsburgism in the end of the nineteenth century? You know, another great question. So, so first of all, you know, a lot of new work wants to stress actually that there was incredibly widespread loyalty to the empire. And if we're thinking about who in particular, you know, you won't. Well, maybe you will be surprised. I'm not sure to know that in some ways, um, you know, classically, some of the most uh, the strongest supporters uh, of the empire were its Jewish citizens. You know, who mm. had the least to gain by the nationalization of politics, right? They knew and sensed that if this is going to, if this area is going to become a region of nation states, we're going to lose, right? It suits us much better to be in a multinational polity where we're one of among many groups uh, rather than, uh, you know, a, a minority in, in a nation state belonging to, to someone else. And so there were all kinds of people who had a lot to gain from a state that did not. And, and there were the, the Jewish population of the Habsburg Empire was remarkably rich you know everyone from Wittgenstein to Freud I mean it's an astonishing exactly. array of people and a lot of the key uh, lawyers the sort of the key jurists and legal thinkers in my book are Jewish as well so that's the, the case for Georg Jelinek a really fascinating and one of the most kind of important uh, continental uh, jurists at the turn of the century he was the son of Vienna's most famous rabbi right and he really suffered a lot of anti-semitism uh, you know in Vienna that really blocked his path to a full professorship he ended up having to kind of go to a big chair in Heidelberg where he was a, a, a friend an interlocutor of Max Weber. Um, but that's also the, uh, true of his student, Hans Kelsen, who's another big character in my book, who's kind of one of the most important legal philosophers of the 20th century, uh, who also had a Jewish background. Um, and he really goes on to kind of give a whole new account of, of, of legal philosophy. Um, and he's, he's also really shaped by the Habsburg. Yeah, and uh, ironically enough, Natasha, this is the week of... Um of the release of uh, Oppenheimer about the American, so-called American invention of the uh, atomic bomb. I'm going to do some shows on it later in the week. Most of the theoretical physicists who invented the bomb actually were from Central Europe. One thinks of Edward Teller, for example, who invented the hydrogen bomb. Had mm. the hot, uh, I mean, it's one of the slightly absurd what might have been of history, but had the Habsburg Empire not broken up, and they'd kept all their Jewish scientists and physicists, they probably would have been the first people to invent the atomic bomb. <laughs> yes, that, that's the sort of speculation that we uh, professional historians don't usually uh, indulge in. <laughs> I can indulge in that since I'm not a professional exactly, historian. Exactly, so, exactly. So, Please so, do. Yes. So, but, but I can other, say sorry, that, just about this sort of like absolute kind of intellectual ferment, right? You know, Vienna is famous for this, right? I mean, you or some of your readers may have heard of, of a very famous and wonderful book by Karl Schorsker called, yeah. uh, you know, Culture and Politics, Fantasy of Vienna. And, you know, he, he goes through Freud, but also, you know, the, the musicians, the architects, right? It's Schoenberg, Luz. I mean, it's got a little the visual Marla, artists. Yeah, it's incredible. You know, incredibly Schiele. rich. Right, exactly. And, and so a lot of people figure Vienna around that turn of the century mark, around the 1900 mark, as the kind of birthplace of modernity, you know, whether you think about, yeah, the birthplace of, of psychoanalysis, you know, but also, you know, this is where Hitler kind of, you know, was right. politically formed. Uh, it's also where Herzl, you know, uh, uh, really, you know, began to, to think systematically, you know, about Zionism. And so, so many strands that then play out over the course of the 20th century are really shaped in, in a fundamental way by this cauldron. And in some ways, I want to show it's also the same for states and questions of sovereignty and law and legal philosophy. They should be part of this kind of intellectual ferment um, that we've sketched for other fields as well. Uh, Natasha, again, you're, 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 you're being very gentle with me, but you're correcting me when I'm wrong, which is very healthy. I, I always understood 
in the 19th century that the struggle to keep the Habsburg state together resulted in this rather awkward arrangement with the dual monarchy and an and Austro-Hungarian state. Is that true? The, the creation of these sort of two states within a state, within the Habsburg Empire, one in Vienna, one in Budapest, was that a manifestation of, of, of weakness or strength of the Habsburg Empire? Yeah, it's an absolutely fascinating uh, settlement. So uh, for readers at, or listeners at home, uh, yes, in 1867, the empire comes up or trials a, a new approach to, to the questions of, of sovereignty and constitutional structure and reforms the empire into two separate and fully sovereign states, Hungary on the one hand, and on the other hand, this collection of lands that we call Austria, but in fact never actually had that name uh, in law. The formal title was the kingdoms and lands represented in the imperial parliament. <laughs> but because that was such a mouthful, contemporaries then and people since, you know, often refer to it simply uh, as Austria. And so we have this new hyphenated empire, the Austro-Hungarian Empire or Austria-Hungary. And that hyphen is telling. I mean, it, it's classic. It's so musolesque, right? And we were talking about the man with that qualities, that you've got this, this kind of double-barreled state. Uh, and, you know, it, it drives jurists and politicians crazy trying to work out how this can be made sense of. Is this truly two states, um, you know, or is there some sort of overarching empire that combines the two? Uh, and, and in some ways, um, you know, this question of is it a sign of strength or is it a sign of weakness? I mean, it, that's kind of simple way of thinking about it as an historical phenomenon. It's true that it's a sign of the the, the you know, a certain sort of weakness on the behalf of the imperial government that they feel like they need to compromise uh, with the Hungarians and, and give them uh, this much autonomy and jurisdiction over their own affairs. At the same time, we can see how those sorts of strategies of kind of building alliances with, um, you know, local or regional elites and allowing them a lot of self-governance, that had been an extremely successful strategy over centuries uh, for the Habsburgs. And in some ways we could see it as, as crucial to, you know, their malleability and success as empire builders. And it's perhaps only according to these modern understandings of sovereignty that really stress the singularity of one legal order, right, or of one system uh, that see that sort of thing as a sign of weakness, when in fact, you know, perhaps it's a sign of strength uh, or a, a certain sort of flexibility. And I certainly think that's sort of um, the line between those two, right? How could we in some ways be both and, right, or both at the same time? Uh, you, you see suffuse this culture. And so that all those artists that we mentioned, all those writers are playing with that, how many things can be true at once. Uh, and this is very much uh, an empire, uh, you know, in, in a kind of political and artistic and intellectual culture that is always interested, not in the singularity of things, but in their multiplicity and their complexity and all of the contradictions and ironies that arise because of that multiplicity. Yeah, that summarizes the Habsburg Empire and, of course, its history, short history in the 20th century. Uh, they acquired Bosnia and then, of course, the, there was the assassination in Sarajevo that caused the First World War and the end of the Habsburg Empire. We did a show with Alexander Heman. I'm not sure if you're familiar with him. He's a novelist, a Bosnia, born in Bosnia, now lives in the U.S. I think actually he teaches at Princeton. He has a new novel out. Oh. The world and all and all that it holds. It's a kind of book, an odd way, uh, Natasha. It's 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 fiction which sort of accompanies you. It's the idea oh. of holding many different contradictions in your head. It's a book about exile from Sarajevo and the Habsburg Empire. How appropriate was the assassination of the Archduke in 
Sarajevo in Bosnia of all places, which was a kind of in an odd way, a, a, a shrunken down version of the Habsburg Empire. Uh, was the question how appropriate was it? You yeah. mean, how, I mean how, how, as a historian, how... was it was it particularly ironic, a, a Habsburg irony? I mean, it is almost a little bit too picturesque, isn't it? In the, in the sense that it's it's the east, like the the kind of a, the actual periphery of the empire. Uh, and so, to give a bit of background, um, you know, Austria-Hungary first uh, occupies Bosnia Herzegovina in 1878, and so it remains formally under Ottoman sovereignty at this point, but it's administered by Austria-Hungary. And this again is like this classically complex yeah. sovereign arrangement uh, that everyone, no one really knows if it's fictional or, or who is the true sovereign. Uh, but then it outright annexes these territories in 1908. And so the question of how these new territories fit into the empire remains kind of unsolved until, you know, right through to the empire's collapse. Uh, certainly in more recent times, um, some scholars have wanted to say that this is Austria-Hungary's first true colony Right. If, if, so if we can't think about the other lands that compose the state really as colonies in the same way that like the British Empire had colonies, you know what I mean? Or the French Empire had colonies. This looks a bit more like that kind of classical model of colonial rule where there's, you know, it's an imposed uh, rule from outside that seeks to restructure uh, the order uh, on the ground. Uh, and, you know, they, they do build uh, some, you know, quote unquote, modern infrastructure, uh, but, but also have that sort of colonial arrogance, right, where they think they are bringing modernity and progress uh, to an otherwise backward territory that needs development and needs to be brought, uh, you know, into the 20th century. Uh, but it's so, it, and it, it, there's a lot of resentment that builds up there, but also because of, of um, you know, these rising national movements and in particular this Serb desire to have a, you know, a greater Serbian state, it, it also becomes this kind of threat or this sort of like uh, vulnerability for the Habsburg Empire where they're very, you know, nervous about um, these rising national movements. And if you were going to recognize some sort of Serbian nationalism, what did that mean about the other Slavic groups uh, in the empire? And so it's, it's a real sore spot. Uh, and yes, that's why when the, the, the heir to the throne uh, is assassinated while on a kind of um, routine military inspection there uh, in Sarajevo, that's why the Habsburg government responds uh, in such uncompromising ways, you know, issuing these ultimatums that ultimately, you know, bring about, you know, through this, this, this lattice work uh, of alliances, you know, the First World War, which kind of changes the shit. Right. It, it drags the whole world into a war. It's probably the, the Habsburg's greatest, most profound, lasting <laughs> legacy. So they enter the war. Their, their, military, uh, their military achievements aren't particularly distinguished. They lose yeah. the war. Mm -hmm. And then the, the Habsburg Empire disintegrates. Uh, what what changes, uh, Natasha? How does the region change? And what does your book, The Life and Death of States, suggest about this transformation from empire, from the Habsburg Empire, into a series of uh, individual nation states, Czechoslovakia, Hungary, Austria, uh, Yugoslavia, which incorporated the, the, the Croats and the Serbs? What, what, what does your book suggest about this in terms of both understanding history and also signposts to our 21st century future. Yeah, absolutely. So the whole second half of the book is about what happens, you know, once the empire collapses. And so, you know, in some of the book as a whole is about how do we get this world that we have now composed, 
exclusively essentially of states, right? Where even just back in the 19th century, 150 years ago, there are all kinds of different polities, you know, you know, indigenous communities living according to their own law. There are these, yeah, globe-spanning industrialized empires. You know, there are these polycentric sultanates, you know, in Southeast Asia. There are all kinds of different formations. Uh, whereas now we have this world where everything is, you know, segmented into these standard states. And I say there are two kind of meta narratives about that. One is about how we go from all of those plural orders into single homogenous orders, which I was discussing earlier. But another key part of that transformation is, of course, the collapses and decline of empire and the rise of the nation state uh, in its wake. And so the, the key kind of locus chronologically for that transformation of the world you know, happens in the decades after World War II, where you have the breakdown of, of, of the British and the French and other maritime empires, and especially their rule uh, in different parts of Asia and Africa. Uh, but in some ways, my book wants to say we can also see crucial parts of that world in formation with the collapse of the Habsburg Empire at the end of World War I in 1918. So it's not only that you have the breakdown of a kind of multi-ethnic imperial space into a series of nation states, right, as you mentioned, you know, Hungary, uh, the, uh, then Czechoslovakia, Yugoslavia, and so on. Uh, but also you have to then begin thinking about a lot of the legal problems attached to the death and the birth of states, right? So what happens to state debt, right? So, so they have, what, what happens to the Habsburg Empire's war debt? Who inherits that, if anyone, right? You know, what happens to the pensions that the Habsburg government owed to all kinds of uh, employees? What happens to the railway networks that used to belong to the Habsburg state that are now crisscrossing all these other polities, right? What happens to archives? What happens to just all kinds of things that we don't normally think about, you know, that, that are everywhere around us and that require a kind of continuous order, right? That require a state to be continuous, to continue order intergenerationally, even though we die, even though a government changes, that state continues as a kind of seamless legal entity. And so a whole lot of legal problems had to be thrashed out there uh, kind of uh, for the first time in the 20th century. And I show how a lot of those legal kind of solutions to those problems that are developed in that Central European context in 1918 and 1919 and throughout the 1920s go on to have these very interesting afterlives in global decolonization after the Second World War. So you've got uh, jurists uh, from Algeria or from India playing with a lot of the same ideas uh, when their states are seeking and defining their independence uh, in, in the 40s and the 50s and the 60s. Um, and so in some ways, the book wants to suggest that if we're interested in this in this story of, of global decolonization, it's a really interesting place to start the Habsburg Empire. And those stories have kind of not really been connected before. Yeah, globalizing it. it, it it's, a, it's a fascinating narrative. You present it also brilliantly, Natasha. Um, Thank you. You mentioned Weber earlier, um, the father of modern sociology, a German, but has spent a lot of time in the Habsburg Empire, understood it as well as anyone. Um, he was, of course, the sociologist who invented the concept of bureaucracy as a, as a, a modern form of rule or sovereignty, perhaps. The, the one Habsburg figure we haven't mentioned, I guess he was a post-Habsburg figure, he lived in the Habsburg's lands, was Kafka, uh, who, of course, uh, philosophized, if you like, on the idea of bureaucracy. What about the Habsburgs and bureaucracy? Did they kind of invent it? When you go to Central Europe now, it's still, for better or worse, enormously bureaucratized. <laughs> 
yeah, I, I've got lots of stories about that. Uh, you know, turning up as a graduate student there and, and wanting to enroll at a university or go to an archive, you know, I often needed all of these, you know, documents, not only kind of officially with some letterhead from, I was a graduate student at Columbia. And so not only with some sort of Columbia letterhead, but also they wanted the seal, you know, <laughs> like the, the, the stamp and the, the kind of almost wax seal. I was just like, they don't do that anymore in America. I'm sorry. But yes, you know, these cultures of bureaucracy are, are so strong there. It's absolutely true. Yeah. So, you know, one classic kind of narrative about the Habsburg Empire is that, yes, it didn't have a kind of um, defining ideology or reason of state, but it had these incredibly, um, you know, in their own way, kind of functional multinational institutions. Like chief among them was the army and the bureaucracy. Uh, that with these big machines, right, that employed a lot of people uh, and and in their own way had a kind of slow but functionality, uh, you know. Uh, uh, but it's true that it was kind of this um, very complex structure because essentially the way, again, that the Habsburgs had dealt with these sovereignty questions was to have what we now talk about as a dual-track administration where, say, you know, in, in Bohemia and then it's different um, sub-districts, you'd have a kind of government organ or office, you know, from the central government, but you'd also have a local equivalent. And so there's this kind of doubling, right, where there, there are these multiple offices responsible often for overlapping things, which creates huge complexities. And we might now think of, you know, as, as incredibly inefficient because we're all about these sorts of uh, streamlined rationalities now. But we can see how it had its own sort of rationality because it was trying to, again, keep multiple things in play at once and for it to have some sort of central control as well as local autonomy. And again, these solutions weren't, you know, always bad ones. Uh, and, and a lot of new work, I mean, I can think of like Peter Judson, uh, probably the most prominent historian of the empire today. He wrote a big new book published with Harvard University Press called The Habsburg Empire. And you yeah, just... you, you had an interesting review in the London Review of Books. Right, correct. He really wants to show, uh, you know, you know how this was a very powerful version of modernity, right? Even though it didn't look like, you know, the yeah. modern we, we tended to Have we over-associated democracy with modernity? I think is there think, any democracy in you know now we have people in the central university uh, is a central european university george soros and his team and his crowd we've done lots of interviews with them i've been there several times sort of juxtaposing central european democracy with the authoritarianism of the east but you haven't mentioned much about democracy can habsburg can the Habsburg experience, Habsburg history, can it teach us anything about democracy as we struggle with it, as we see its reappearance, not just in the East, but in countries like Hungary and Poland? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's fascinating. I mean, you know, people often don't realize, uh, you know, how far democratic reforms had gone in Austria-Hungary. You know, in, in the time that the empire collapses, you know, you have universal male suffrage and, and a very robust kind of public civil political sphere. Uh, and, and, and so it's it's not some, you know, yeah, um, democracy-less authoritarian state uh, in that sense. What's really interesting about the way that mass politics and democratic politics evolves in the Austro-Hungarian Empire is the way in which it actually feeds nationalization, right? Because all of a sudden it becomes about mobilizing people to vote and mobilizing different communities. And someone like Judson has shown how that actually generates new identities as well, uh, where, um, you know, in, in order to kind of these local uh, elites in order to kind of get money for their schools or other sorts of local um, agendas, you know, often would then try to appeal to people and say, you know, you're Czech, you're German, you're Slovene, whatever, and, and you need to come out and vote on that basis. A lot of parties end up forming on a national basis. And so it's actually the, the kind of evolution of mass politics itself that 
produces a lot of national identities, right, or, or is dynamically involved in their production. Because you cycle back to the early 19th century, most people didn't un- identify in national terms, right? They might have identified with a town or with a region, um, but they often spoke multiple languages and had other ways of understanding themselves. And so we can see how democracy, first of all, um, uh, was involved in other sorts of processes. So if we think about two classic narratives of the 19th century, democratization and nationalization, you know, those aren't separate, but Habsburg lands show us how they're profoundly uh, intertwined. Um, but also, I think it, the Habsburg example also shows us how people had to think much more creatively than just a kind of single individual liberal idea of, of democracy, which is, you know, one person, one vote. Someone like, you know, people like Karl Renner and Otto Bauer, these famous Austro-Marxists, were really thinking, no, nations as collectives also need some sort of autonomy and representation and, and agency in the organs of government, right? It's not enough for people only to be recognized as individuals, because then all these communal cultural questions, right, that are so crucial to, to people in the empire get lost. And so they're actually thinking about how you have a kind of democracy of nations too, right? About turning the empire into a federation of nations that allows the people to have, you know, collective uh, autonomy and self-determination in addition uh, to that more individual model. So I think there are a lot of interesting things um, for, for, for theorists and historians of democracy to draw out um, of the example of Habsburg history. So final question, Natasha, my engineer is telling me I have to end, uh, but it's, it's so interesting. Um, Given the way in which authoritarianism and nationalism seems to have been joined in the 2020s, it's not just Trump uh, or or Putin, it's Modi, uh, it's Bolsonaro and so on and so forth, even Orban. Are you suggesting that the Habsburg model could provide uh, an alternative model to these authoritarian nationalisms, given that everybody lives in countries where there are different nationalities, whether it's the United States or Cyprus or Israel or Russia? Uh, you know, again, <laughs> we historians get very nervous about things being taken as, as, as simple models because all historical legacies are profoundly complex, right? And and there are all kinds of things that we definitely wouldn't want to carry over. And this book certainly isn't some sort of, you know, nostalgic resurrection uh, of the Habsburg lands as some sort of beacon or or lighthouse uh, for the present. Having said that, I think the case really can help us kind of puncture a lot of lazy assumptions that we make and, and a lot of kind of you know, um, uh, you know, hackneyed ideas about what modernity uh, should look like. And in some ways, uh, these different models of organizing jurisdiction and, and organizing political life are already happening, whether we like it or not, uh, through not only these forms of authoritarianism you mentioned, but also through the way the world is breaking up economically in all kinds of different ways, as someone like Quinn Slobodian, you know, shows in his recent work. And so our thinking needs to catch up. And for that sort of catch up and that sort of reorientation, I think the Habsburg case is so counterintuitive that it opens up new corridors and is always a really interesting place from which to think about about these questions. And so I would go that far at least.